This is the Marketing Intern Spotlight, where we are committed to unlock how every marketing intern has an innate ability to be an entrepreneur, motivator, and influencer. Megan Hawkins, let's welcome you to the Back Pocket Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm really happy to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me on. I feel a little bit more famous than I normally do. That's so cool. I think someone that wouldn't know you, if you could provide them with a little background about yourself, maybe describe your profession and how we know each other. Okay. Um, well, Andrew is my cousin and I'm actually his godmother. Yep. Um, and I went to Notre Dame for my undergraduate degree and I thought that I wanted to be a historian and I distinctly remember senior year calling my dad and telling him that, and he just laughed on the other end of the phone. And I kind of realized like, yeah, that's just like not going to be for me. So I ended up going to grad school at Duke to get a master's in teaching. And then I taught at a really um, low income school in North Carolina for three years before moving back to the town I was from where I teach um, high school at the school that I went to. Um, but it's a brand new, super nice building. So it doesn't feel like the school I went to, but it is officially that. Awesome. So that's taken you to where you are today. And you're a history teacher in Bloomington. Yeah, I teach at um, Normal Community High School. So we are a normal school, which always gets people to laugh a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I teach U.S. history to sophomores. I teach AP comparative government and economics. And I've also taught you or I taught world history before and I've taught human geography. So social studies encompasses a lot of different classes in our high school. Wow. Holy cow. Let's also... uh congratulate you for getting into and staying at Notre Dame for four years. And then you're like, Oh yeah. And then, and then I went to, to grad school at Duke. It's like, yeah, gracious. I really managed to alienate a lot of people who either hate Notre Dame football or hate Duke basketball. And so but, and there's yeah. a lot of those out there. There are a lot of those out there. Yeah. The joke is everyone's either a Notre Dame fan or you're a closet Notre Dame fan and you just can't say it out loud. So. Okay. That's fair. Well, I think, you know, you are maybe perceived as a bandwagon fan. Is that is that a problem? A bandwagon fan for Notre Dame for you guys? Well, no. Well, I'm saying like, oh, she likes Notre Dame and Duke. Like, if they didn't know you uh, went there, you know. Yeah, maybe we get that a lot. Football too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe get your masters or something in Alabama football, and then you got everything. Yeah, covered. then you'll yeah. then you'll hit it. Full Can't side. do that. Can't do that. I know how to read, so I wouldn't be like led into Alabama or something like that. Mm, okay, that's cool. all. All right, so I want to ask you. Um, wait, do we we didn't even ask average quality yet? So let's get there first. Uh, Megan, average quality. Okay, so I thought about this a lot this week, and I think I'm going to go with motherhood is my average quality. So I have above average love for my daughter. But in terms of the actual execution of parenting, I would say that I am an average mother. Um, I'm not leaving my daughter in the car with like the windows rolled up or anything. But there is a whole world on Instagram of like mothers in white dresses on white tables with daughters in white tables painting without a smudge anywhere. And I'm just definitely not that. So um, this morning... She ate a donut for breakfast. She had some French fries as a snack and she had the spaghetti we were eating for dinner. So like we fed her probably not organic home cooked food, but we're doing the best we can. That's excellent. That's pretty phenomenal. I would say you're definitely not a bad mom. You didn't leave your daughter in the car, like good work. 
Nice work. I'll congratulate you on that one. <laughs> I want to know what are your thoughts. As you mentioned moms on Instagram, do you post a lot about your children on or your child on Facebook, Instagram for everyone to see? Or do you kind of keep that under wraps like this is my family type thing? All right. So a uh, secret. I'm not actually on Facebook. I have never been on Facebook. I'm one of like the last people who can say that, I think. Um, but I am on Instagram and I post pictures of her. Uh, it, it's a hard line. Um, so my account's private. So random strangers aren't seeing her. And I, I think that's an important line. You know, as a high school teacher, I see students having to deal with the pressures of social media. And, you know, right now that doesn't apply to my daughter. She's 16 months old. Um, so, you know, I think when she gets a little bit older, we'll make some different choices. But for right now, it's a great way to stay in touch with our family who can see kind of the escapades she gets into every day. I think that's perfectly said too, because it's not you tri- trying to show how awesome Evelyn is all the time. It's yeah. you showing who Evelyn is all the time. And I get a huge kick out of that. And, and me being your cousin, I know probably a lot of your friends as well, um, truly appreciate that. Cause then we get to see Evelyn, how she is acting all the time. And it's so funny. You probably can't hear it. At least I'm hoping not. But like I can hear in my basement, the screams coming from upstairs as she does. God knows what. Um, but she likes to eat rocks right now. Um, she likes to drink things and then just spit it all back out on the floor. Like she's she's a fun little one. <laughs> like you're explaining your daughter, but you're also explaining like things that I've done. <laughs> so like do not sell her short. You <laughs> Evelyn sounds great. And she, you know, she's probably listening. This is a six-year-old. How you doing, Evelyn? The back pocket. Um, so let's transition now to your profession. You're teaching history in high school. Um, I'd love to know how that is. Um, how are you perceived to your students? How do you handle those type of situations? Kind of diving into that whole train of thought. Yeah, I think how I'm perceived has changed as I've gotten older and the gap between me and my students has widened. So I think a lot of times when you're a new teacher, you're trying to be the teacher because you're like five years older than your students if you're teaching high school. Um, And so now that I am way older than that, um, we were talking about 9-11 this week and my students were not born for 9-11. They were born in like the 2000s, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, so I think, or at least I hope that I'm perceived as a teacher who's fair and who tries to teach everyone that I'm not playing favorites and only targeting certain kids. Um, you know, I think when you ask kids how they feel about you, they usually tell you that they like you, you know, they're not going to tell you to your face that they hate you or hate your class. Um, but I do think I've converted a couple kids into liking history, um, over the years. This is my 12th year of teaching. So I've taught a lot of kids by now and I have had a lot of experiences with them. Okay. And what would you say would be touching on to your career path, the biggest difference of teaching from a low income uh, education foundation to where you are teaching in normal Bloomington, Illinois at normal, normal high school? That's a great question. So when I taught at my first school in Durham, North Carolina, um, I taught a class that was U.S. history for students who have already failed U.S. history at least once before. That was the official title. So we had a state-mandated test. It was 150 multiple-choice questions that I didn't get to see. It came in a box at the end of the year. And if the kids didn't pass it, then they had to retake U.S. history. And I was teaching students who 
Um, many of them were working 40 hours a week trying to help support their family. They didn't have family members who had gone to college or who could help them with homework or anything like that. And so a lot of that job was about trying to get the kids to, to learn basic skills and feel confident that they could succeed. And then I think now where I'm at, you know, the students, most of my students come from a different background, um, but that doesn't mean they don't face challenges. I think we sometimes forget that, like, it doesn't matter how much money you have. High school can be rough. Like being a teenager is just it's difficult. And you bring a lot of the baggage that you have at home to school. So in that sense, a lot of those challenges are the same. Um, But I just have a lot more resources to work with. I have a smart board in my classroom and a computer. And my old school, we had a projector that three teachers shared and a TV for the hall. So it's just a lot nicer in terms of the resources. And that lets me help my students a lot easier. Or it takes less effort on my part to help them. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. And what's crazy too is like the whole – what I love about history is the perspective that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And- on your end, you're instilling that perspective. You're trying to put these students, whether it's from Durham or normal, into this, into like what it's like to live through U.S. history. So I think we got to start there in terms of like 9-11. This like was very recent. How did you instill what it felt like that day, the impact on the United States? Like how did you kind of unpack all of this? Yeah, that's a great question, Declan. Um, so... We are talking about World War II. That's our current unit. Um, And the focus now in social studies is about teaching students how to understand sources and build arguments rather than just like memorizing dates and facts, um, which is what it was like when I was in high school. Um, And so we we had a short conversation about 9-11 and I essentially told them, like, we're going to come back to this in March um, when we've gone through history chronologically, because it's really hard to understand things if you don't have context. And that's one of the things I really want to instill in my students is that events that happen don't happen in a vacuum, that they're a product of the times, they're a product of decisions that have come before, and then they influence things that happen after. So, um, you know, we talked very briefly about it, um, that it was a defining moment in our country's history, much in the same way probably that D-Day or World War II, Pearl Harbor were defining moments of the era we were studying. And then, you know, I just said, you know, we're going to come back to it when you have a better context. Mm, that's not easy to do. And um, there's so many things you could take outside of that. Learning how to do that in um, kind of a safe environment with history can go a long way to every single thing you put in. Learning from that, the things prior can really play an impact of what you're doing on your day-to-day basis, whether you're working in on construction at PCL or you're working at um, anywhere for that matter. The things that came before you really affect what you're doing now, and that's going to influence everything later. I think that's awesome that you have the ability to teach that to someone um, as a 15 to 18-year-old um, when they're truly learning how to learn at that point. One of the things we talk about a lot in my class is the idea that you probably aren't going to be a historian, but you are going to have to make arguments and take in information from different people. So maybe you're on a job site and two of your employees have a different vision for what you should do next. You know, you're going to have to be able to weigh and analyze that information, come to your own conclusion and communicate that. And so that's what I'm really trying to teach my students is how to form an informed opinion and then how to communicate your opinion effectively to other people who might not share it. That's awesome. I love that. And it's, it's fluent. It sounds fluent and it sounds like your relationship with your students is just phenomenal. My next question would be, 
What is the hardest part about your job? Oh, man. I'll say teenage boys are the hardest part about my job. Um, We have a really long school day and I teach the last period of the day. And, you know, kids could have just come from an art class or PE and they're super wound up and they don't want to sit and listen. Um, So it's a real challenge to try to motivate kids who maybe don't think history is important or don't think school is important to get them to see the value in what I'm trying to teach them. And that's something that happens every day, every class period. So, you know, the longer I've taught, the more experiences I've had with different kids. And I can kind of think, oh, Andy reminds me of this other kid I taught. So like, I'll use those things that worked for that kid, give it a try. Um, But yeah, it's hard to get kids to stay motivated. I mean, I don't know. There were no cell phones when I was in high school. So it was, there were a lot fewer distractions. And so if you don't want to focus, it's really easy to not focus now. So um, I think that's probably the biggest challenge. Absolutely. And I think you said that as well. Another challenge is trying to make sure they're present with you, all the other distractions, technology being one of them. Mm -hmm. And is normal high school, do they have iPads for um, the majority of students? We have a bring your own device policy. So all the kids have computers um, and they can have their cell phones in the classroom. So there's just like a lot of a lot of opportunities to get distracted. Yeah. And so what are the things that you find um, are helping with um, negating that distraction? Like, how do you deal with technology in high school now? Because when when I finished high school, the freshman class had iPads and uh my first year in college, they gave the entire high school iPads. So like, I didn't experience every student having technology and there was cell phone limit limitations. Like you could only have them in the hallway. And now that like you're mentioning, you can have them in the classroom. So what is that like and how are you handling it? I think one of the things that's really important is to try to get students to buy in and believe what they're doing in class matters. And so if they think it's busy work, if they think you don't care, if they think you don't have a plan, then it's really easy for them to get distracted. So I try to make sure that what I'm doing in class is meaningful um, for everyone. So a lot of times in my class, kids are working on something different that's targeted maybe more at their interests or it might be more at their their skill level um, so that they feel like there's something meaningful. And in my classroom, I say like, once you're done with the activity, then you can get your phone out. So there's kind of some motivation to, to do what you're supposed to. I also understand, you know, I, I want to check my phone too. So I'm not trying to say, I don't want to see your phone. You know, I'm trying to get them to have a sense of respect that, you know, as an adult, at dinner, you might check your phone, but you should put your phone down when you're talking with friends most of the time to try to teach them kind of that adult phone etiquette um, and, and understand that sometimes their mom might be texting them and they have to check. I think that's really cool that you mentioned that too, because that was definitely not the case early on with phone usage in classrooms. It was that hard no, like you cannot have that out. And I think that in itself created the distraction because then the whole time they're like, I want to check my phone. I want to check my phone. And I think having that mindset of, uh, and even that, uh, that policy of saying, Hey, if you check your phone, I understand that has to happen at times, but please know that I want to be your main priority. So try to learn how to make my, your my, you are my main priority. I think a lot of times in high school, kids feel like they're being treated like kids and that's not a good feeling. And so if you treat them like adults, then they tend to behave like adults. Um, you know, I think respect kind of goes both ways. I know as a teacher that they're supposed to respect me, but I also want them to respect me. 
I like that. You also mentioned, you know, your what you are providing has to bring value to these people, these students, these kids, in order for them to underlearn and in, in order for them to understand, prioritize you over their phones. How do you bring value to these kids? A great question. So for my students, I think a lot of them go through school and they don't feel connected to what they're doing. Maybe they don't feel connected to the teacher. Maybe they don't see meaning in what they're doing. Um, They're used to taking multiple choice tests and like, that's not what the real world is like. So I try to create activities that are designed to kind of mimic the thinking that you do in real life. Um, So we don't take multiple choice tests anymore. Um, You have to write your own arguments on specific questions using sources. And I try to design activities that give them a chance to interact with each other in meaningful ways so that they aren't just sitting, listening to me talk, that they're actually doing something with the material. Uh, You know, that's awesome. And that really made me reflect on how I my experience as an AP US history. Um, so I, AP world to give you a little context, AP world, I got a two on the uh, AP mm-hmm. test and I, okay. I not, not impressed. I uh, was way over my head. It was really hard. I couldn't like the Byzantine empire and all that was just like words. I couldn't even pronounce. I struggled the whole time, but then us history, I was like, all right, I want to do better. And I had one of my, my, I had my favorite teacher during high school during that time. She was the teacher I asked my senior year in football to come down and take the award. Like you give a teacher an award for um, your four years and you say, thank you for helping me be a student athlete. And Mrs. Dry, she was my teacher. Um, And it was AP US history. And I ended up getting a four on that test. And I was like significantly improved. And that was like preparing me to be a college student. I think that class in itself helped me really hone in my work ethic to become a college student. And it's exactly that. It's treating someone like an adult. It's providing value in a way that's saying, hey, this is something that is going to, you're going to be able to utilize, but you need to learn how to utilize it. Um, so it's, I'm trying to remember that feeling, being a high school student, but also being, um, being in, um, incredibly impacted during that time frame. I think what you said, like, strikes at what I try to do in my classroom. You don't remember what she taught you, but you remember how you felt in that classroom. And I think that when you think about your favorite teachers, that's usually it. There's some feeling, a feeling of confidence or being welcomed or maybe a struggle, but a struggle where you you made steps forward. Um, and so I want my kids to feel that in my classroom because, um, you know, they have the Internet, so they can look up the facts and stuff. But I think it's important to have have some confidence when you leave, uh, leave a class. Mm-hmm. I like that. You mentioned confidence, man. Confidence comes from when you throw yourself into a situation that you don't really necessarily know the outcome for. And I could definitely like where Andrew got the two on the AP U S history or what was it? AP world, AP world. Yep. Okay. So I never took an AP writing or an AP U S or like a history class. I was all math and science. I was just more so a nerd. And, uh, <laughs> I struggled with writing. Like I was not that good of a writer and it's funny. We're starting a blog now talking about it, but I remember my sophomore year teacher, like Andrew said, Mrs. Maxfield like taught me or just instilled this perspective of like, Hey, reading and writing isn't that bad. Like I'll give you guys some fun books to read. You guys write about them, you know, stuff like that. I just think it's so important. And ever since then, like I've been so motivated to try and better that about myself just by identifying like, Hey, I'm naturally better at math and science, but that doesn't mean I just throw writing and reading to the side. It just means I need to identify and get better. 
And so like confidence right there, like I have the confidence to just try it out and try and get better. So how would you, how do you instill that kind of confidence in your students? Is there like a certain tactic that you use? Yeah, I think it's important for students to have a chance to be successful. And I don't know about you, but I can think back to classes that I had where a teacher would call on people to intentionally like catch them not paying attention or gotcha questions. And then that just doesn't make you feel good. Um, So one of the things I learned in my teaching program is to try to give students chances to participate where they can participate successfully. So if you're the math and science kid and, you know, you don't do really well with the cause and effect pictures, I might ask you a simple, easy question to get the ball rolling. You get a good one. You feel confident about it. And then a week later, maybe you're more willing to participate in class voluntarily because you had that successful experience. I also try to really tailor my assignments to where students are at. So when we're doing readings in class, there might be three different versions of the same reading. So an easy one, a middle one, and a harder one so that you are reading something that you can understand so that you can then talk about it or do something with it instead of reading something that you don't get and then you can't talk about it and then you didn't understand, you feel dumb, you can't participate in the conversation, you feel worse, and then you don't want to try. Confidence is huge, and that's exactly it. It leads to the next thing. It gets the ball rolling. When someone has the confidence to speak up in class, you know that they're starting to take away things, and you can see that growth in them. Um, But I'd like to ask a little more lighthearted question. What is an experience that happens, um, whether it's like an answer on a test that they got got completely – a lot of people in your class got completely wrong and you were shocked, or it was like a paper they submitted? What's a story you could share with our marketing interns that you find humorous? Okay, so I'll tell you maps are the worst thing possible. You just ask kids to like label a map and you can ask kids to label a map and give them a picture of the map labeled. And it still, is just like a disaster. So last week we were labeling a map of the Pacific during world war two. And the map they were looking at that was labeled was not exactly the same size as the map they had on their page. And the number of kids who labeled, China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. One girl thought that Vietnam was Pearl Harbor, (laughs) even though they had a picture of a labeled map. Um, It is, it is brutal. And those are the moments when I think like, oh man, like we should have spent a lot more time memorizing geography. (laughs) (laughs) Is that necessary? Like to know where everything in Europe is located? I only know because I went there not to brag. And I had to take these maps tests in college like two years ago. So I have a general idea. But like, is it bad to not know where Laos is? Um, I would say no. But if you're learning about World War II in Europe and you don't understand where France is and where the Soviet Union is, then you don't understand that Germany's fighting a two-front war. Mm-hmm. And then you don't understand why D-Day is such a big deal. And then it doesn't, it doesn't, geography helps you put the pieces together. Um, and so studying the war in the Pacific, you know, they have to understand that these places are are hundreds and hundreds of miles apart. And so it's not easy to just defeat Japan um, when in their minds, I think they a lot of times envision, you know, Japan is like Canada to us. It's right there. Why couldn't we just attack and invade? I had someone ask, like, why didn't the army just invade Japan? And it's like, well, it's an island. <laughs> they had to get there. They had to get there. Yeah. So I think that is where geography plays a role. It's not, you know, can you identify all the capitals of a country, but do you understand the role it plays in the events and how they unfold? 
Awesome. I like that. And continuing on down the humorous path, we'd like to put the ball in your court. Okay. Uh, game, game alert. Game. Game. Okay. So game. this is uh, an, a, a game that we like to play to make ourselves more vulnerable, I'd say. We're definitely okay. vulnerable. Uh, like I said, I got a two on the AP world, but I did get a four on APUS, and hopefully this can come into play with this game. The game okay. is – uh, you get to ask us history questions. As a history teacher, we are your students now. Um, and we would love to uh, try, attempt to answer these questions. And one thing before we get into it, this is the f- second time we've ever done a history quiz on this podcast. So the first time was episode one, if you weren't familiar. And Andrew and I got what time the Civil War Civil War was. I actually remember that one because I laughed out loud. I laughed out loud. (laughs) Talk about putting things into context. We dropped the ball on that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I've got a twist on that game. So I have some famous people and it's called a day in the life. So you have to figure out one year in which the person was alive. Okay. Okay. That's it. Okay. So I I started out with an easy one. I'm going to give you Roberto Clemente. So you have to give me one year that he was alive. Just- okay. Yep. So 1969, because he passed away in 1972. Excellent. Okay. So that was your warm up question. Thank I know that Andy's a big Pirates fan. Okay. <laughs> so your second person is Napoleon. Oh. Okay. Um. I, I can go. Can you, f- wait. Wait. Hold on. Let's let's ask for some hints. Um. What war did he fight in? Mm, mm-mm. Yeah, Napoleon? No, because Napoleon <laughs> fought in a war that was the war of a year. So I can't give you that one. Oh, oh. no. Okay. okay. Um well I know he, he I'm was going a short for, guy. I'm going fourteen hundred. Uh, yeah. Fourteen hundred? I don't know. I know. So here's what I know about Napoleon, just thinking out loud okay. here. He is the he's the he's short, so they mm-hmm. always refer to like short people as Napoleon because Napoleon was a Napoleon short guy. complex. Napoleon complex, exact short mm-hmm. man complex. He uh, had something to do with elephants. Yeah, I think he was, he was one of the first people to ever use elephants in warfare. And with that being said, I think I'm going to sh- shoot my stuff and say 1704. Um, both of you are wrong. Um, Jacqueline, you are less wrong than Andrew. Um, Napoleon is 1769 to 1821. Whoa. Oh, okay. So what war was the war, the year? Um, he was in a European war. He's connected to the war of 1812 in America because he did some funding connected to that. Um, but yeah, wars in Europe. I was okay. atrocious there. That's okay. Here's the next one. Um, St. Thomas. Sorry, what? Is he from France? He's interested? Yeah. Okay, cool. Your next one is St. Thomas, the St. Thomas of your school. You got this, Jack. St. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, he's got a book. Many books. Many books. He, we read uh, them in our in our Theo classes. He's a saint. He's a saint. He's a saint. Uh, oh, God, dude. I don't freaking know, to be honest. All right. If we're going to – Andrew, if we're going to guess what time a Catholic saint got huge, which doesn't narrow down anything because no. Jesus was year one. Zero. <laughs> sorry. Oh, man. Um, you got to help me here, dude. I'm yeah. lost. Right, you've narrowed it down to 2018 years to play with. Yep, <laughs> yep. In those, in that okay. time frame. Okay, we're, we're working with say, something. I want to say he was a little more recent. I'm going to stick in the 1800s, and I'm going to go with like 1844. So I remember reading that it was Thomas Aquinas and Augustine. I know they were like really close. That doesn't help me at all because I can't remember when Augustine. Oh, wait a second. Hold on. We can unpack this a little more because I'm pretty sure he was an Augustinian priest. 
So this might change my answer like 700 years prior to like. Yeah, you also remember that the Civil War was in 1860. So yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Let's do. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, 1142. Close, 1225 to 1274. That was decent. There we go. Um, And you were about 700 years off in your original estimate. (laughs) Um, Okay. Um, Do you want one more? Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. One more. Let's do it. Um, The Prophet Muhammad. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The founder of one of the major world religions. Yeah, Um, Islam, of course. No big deal. Yeah, for real. Um, geez, <laughs> dude, let's think about this. <laughs> you know, okay, I mean, we're gonna sound we're gonna sound stupid no matter what. So yeah. that's we know that. No, um, let, let's let's talk about what we do know. Okay, this is my first question: Is okay. he before or after Jesus? Oh, way after, way after, not way after, but after. Okay, yeah, don't say way because yeah. that helps. Way, we're dealing with two thousand years. Now. So like five hundred. 400 i think it's 400 okay so now let's think about moses after moses yeah so like the promised land and what they were all discussing like i i'm gonna draw this into like israel in that area so like the muslims think that's a that's a promised land i think Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna pause do you think that moses came after jesus no he was before right so moses doesn't help you no he doesn't (laughs) <laughs> Moses is a well, Moses is relevant to like the conflict in Israel, at least. Andrew's at least that far. Yeah, but putting into time context, I yeah, was no, no, no. Thank okay. you for that. Yeah, You're good point. That was, that was humbling. <laughs> Thank you for the hint. I'm gonna have to say, like, we're gonna have to go like in the 300s. I was thinking 400. Okay, but yeah, let's let's go. What do you think? I'm thinking like 304 AD, and I'm gonna say 405. Oh, good, good. Had your bets. Um, close. He is five seventy one to six thirty two. So right. That's pretty good. That's yeah, pretty good. we knew it was. Bef- yeah, that's decent. I am proud yeah. of ourselves. All right, that concludes our game. I think we learned a lot there, um, just <laughs> in regards to there's a lot of famous people and putting things into context of how long ago they were alive or how recent, like Napoleon Bonaparte. I thought was fourteen hundred. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's not very uh, that's not very good, Andrew. Like. I learned, though. I'm happy yeah. that I knew that now. So I where that. I made a big mistake was when you mentioned St. Thomas, I was thinking about the year that St. Thomas was founded, which ah. is probably close to the Civil War. I'm thinking, okay, old Catholic school, 1890s established, most likely. They got their inspiration from a guy 30 years prior, you know, something <laughs> like that. But obviously, St. Thomas Aquinas, not the case. No. Legend at that point. Those were one for one. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and thank you for building confidence early. I really so exactly your teaching strategy was in the game, and uh, I think that was awfully savvy of you because I got really happy and confident after the vertical mente one. It was a softball. It was a softball. It was okay. So that concludes the game, and now we'll transition to our final question. Okay. And that is, what did you learn from the time that you woke up to when we're having this conversation right now? Okay, so one of the things that I learned today is kind of connected to my profession. So um, I I wanted my students to analyze graphs today in economics, and I wanted to talk to them about the content, and they didn't get it. And I got really frustrated, and then I realized that I hadn't taught them how to graphs. 
from me. I just assumed that they could read the graphs. And so I had to take a step backwards and say, you know, this isn't about you. It's about me. And like, I'm the teacher and I have to teach you how to do the things that I want you to be able to do. And so kind of restarted. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a lesson that I remember or relearn. I relearn it a couple times a school year. Um, but today was one of those days. It's humbling. Like, I, so we were humbled, you were humbled. Um, and it's, you're saying it happens a few times because it's like, there's so much you want to teach these kids. And you remember that, Hey, you can't teach them before this thing. It's all about a learning process. We learned a lot during this session. So thank you, Megan. We really appreciate the time you've given us. Thank you. Absolutely.